0: Hey everyone, I'm Beth Vecchione and welcome to Frontline Stories of Change. So I'm a social worker, a founder and a director of social enterprise Care2Dance and now I'm so excited to be the podcast host for this series. You'll hear from some amazing individuals and organisations who share the same mission around bringing about social change and who really want to make a big difference to children and families. They will share their stories and they give some great advice. So I hope you can join in the conversation and we can learn together along the way. In this episode, I speak to Jonathan Powell, former British diplomat, journalist and now director of Intermediate, a charity working on conflict resolution around the world. Now, more than ever, social workers will need to draw upon their own leadership and the leadership of their peers to manage the ripple effects of the pandemic, ensuring that the best support is given to those who need it the most. Jonathan talks about his experience of leadership through difficult times, including the Northern Ireland Peace Talks and his work mediating armed conflicts. So, Thanks so much, Jonathan, for coming on. Um, It's great to speak to you today. How are you? Did you have a nice weekend?
1: Yeah, no, it was very nice. I've uh, I've obeyed all the rules, but I came down to Cornwall once we were allowed to leave London. And It's uh, extremely nice to be outside of London after three and a half months locked up in London. So, yes, I'm in a good mood.
0: Lovely. Cornwall's a beautiful place, isn't it? It's lovely. Lovely down there. And the sun's out, so that's always
1: good. Exactly. Although the trouble is then you have to work and you think, why am I in a place I like to go on holiday and I'm working?
0: Yes, that's a very good point. (laughs) So I'm going to link a lot of our questions um, back to social work um, and sort of use my experience as a social worker as well and really learn from your experience as a leader. Um, And I guess a key skill needed within social work at the moment, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, is leadership um, because we need to try and support children and families as effectively as we can, really, especially those who have been really impacted by it. Um, and as a leader of change, it would be great to hear a bit more about your story and for you to explain a bit more about what you think makes a good leader.
1: Yes. Uh, Nicola Machiavelli writes about, um, uh, it's, it's good to be uh, in the plains if you want to describe the mountains, a good to be in the mountains if you want to describe the plains. So I've been looking at leadership, having worked for Tony Blair and having observed many other leaders close up. So I, was a, uh, I went to university in Britain and then in America, and then I joined the uh, British Foreign Office. And I served in that for 16 years. And then when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party, he asked me to um, to come and join him as uh, his chief of staff in opposition. Uh, He he knew me because he'd come over to meet Bill Clinton. And my job in the embassy in Washington had been to um, follow the American presidential elections. And uh, for no very good reason, I attached myself to Bill Clinton, uh, who was very much an outsider candidate at that stage in 1991. And I went on the first visit he took to New Hampshire, drove around with him in a minibus of visiting schools and things and stayed with him for the whole year of the campaign, observing Bill Clinton and became friends with him, with Hillary, and with his staff. And so when Tony Blair wanted to meet uh, Bill Clinton after he'd been elected and developing the new Labour philosophy, uh, I introduced him, and that's why he knew me. And as I say, when he became leader, he asked me to come and work for him. So I quit the Foreign Office and went to work uh, as his Chief of Staff in Opposition. And then in 1997, when, we, uh, when he won the election... Uh, we moved into Downing Street uh, in May, and I worked uh, w- with him and for him right until the last day. He left through the front door in 2007, and I left through the back door. And when I left, I tried to do various other jobs. I tried being a banker briefly, but I couldn't really get the hang of it. And so what I did was I had, in government, been the chief negotiator on Northern Ireland. So for a decade, from 1997 to 2007... By accident almost, I'd ended up as the chief negotiator working with Adams McGuinness on the Republican side and with David Trimble and Ian Paisley on the Unionist side. And we got to the Good Friday Agreement and then it had taken nine more years to actually get the Good Friday Agreement implemented. Um, So when I left government and I didn't really find what else to do, I set up a charity called Intermediate that works on conflicts around the world. And we worked with ETA in Spain to get to an agreement with the Spanish government that led to the end of ETA in 2011. And then in Colombia, we President Santos, who uh, had negotiations with the FARC, and we worked there for eight years and luckily, again, got to a peace agreement. And now I work in places like Afghanistan and Mozambique and Nigeria uh, on about 12 different conflicts, trying to get to peaceful solutions.
0: That's incredible. That's really an incredible journey. And it must take a lot of perseverance to, I mean, like you said, it takes nine years to come to a, the agreement and must take a lot of perseverance and commitment to negotiate and, and get to the end of that agreement, really.
1: It takes a huge amount of patience, really, peacemaking. It's, uh, if people think it can be done in a sort of couple of weeks, uh, they're going to usually be disappointed because <laughs> often these conflicts have gone on for a long time. You know, Northern Ireland, we <laughs> had 30 years of the troubles. In Colombia, they had 50 years. A quarter of a million people were killed, uh, millions and millions of refugees. Afghanistan, now we've had, we've been fighting there for, what, 20 years, but the war went on long before that. Mm. So you're dealing with places where people have built up great hatred, where terrible things have been done, mm-hmm. and trying to reconcile them is not something that can be done by magic or done overnight. It requires real perseverance to get them to sit down in the first place and then to actually try and come to an agreement and then to implement the agreement. It's a very difficult uh, task. Mm,
0: absolutely. And I think you talk a lot about building trust as well and, and the importance of building trust with, um, I guess, anyone who you are trying to come to an agreement with on both sides. Um, and, you know, for example, during the Northern Ireland Peace Talks, your role was to build trust between two presidents who are very different to yourself. Uh, and I think linking that back to social work. We often mediate, we often try um, to mediate a situation to try and bring a a sense of peace and stability in a child's life, Um, whether that's between two parents or whether we're trying to build trust with different agencies to try and create a better outcome for the children and families that we work with. What is your approach to building trust?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's crucial, obviously, in social work, but also in the sort of political field that I've spent my life working in. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I had no love uh, for the IRA when I started working for Tony Blair. Uh, the IRA had shot my father and injured him in 1940. They had put my brother, who worked for Mrs. Thatcher, on a death list for eight years. So The first time I met Adams and McGuinness with, um, with Tony Blair uh, in 1997, uh, I refused to shake their hands. Alistair Campbell and I stood back, refused to shake their hands. Tony Blair was much more sensible. He shook their hands like he would for, men- for anyone else. Um, about a couple of weeks after that, I got a call from Martin McGuinness and he said to me, would I come to Derry incognito and not tell the securocrats? It's the way he called the police and the army. Mm -hmm. So I asked Tony Blair and he said, yeah, go. So I hopped on a plane and flew to Belfast and then took a taxi to Derry and I stood on a street corner feeling rather foolish, like a sort of John le Carré character. And two guys, um, turned up with shaved heads and they pushed me into the back of a cab and they drove me around and around Derry for about an hour until I was completely lost Uh, And they stopped outside a little modern house at the edge of an estate and they pushed me out of the cab and knocked on the door. And Martin McGuinness came to the door on crutches and he made a very unfunny joke about kneecapping, which you remember is the IRA way of punishing people, Mm -hmm. drilling holes in their knees and their ankles and their elbows. Uh, And we sat there in the house for three hours, four hours. The lady of the house had gone away and left some um, sandwiches and some tea. There was a fire, I remember. And we didn't make any breakthroughs. But what came home to me was if we were going to succeed in making peace in Northern Ireland, we're going to have to build trust. And building trust made shared risks. We mm-hmm. had to be prepared to go onto their turf to talk to them rather than just tell them they had to come to Downing Street or come to um, uh, or come to Stormont Castle or some grand government office. And so for the next 10 years, I spent an awful lot of time crossing the ROC and meeting Adams and McGuinness in safe houses in Dublin, in Belfast and Derry. And that's where you were able to build up this kind of relationship of trust. It did not mean that we were friends, mm-hmm. Um the, uh, if you talk to, for example, the Palestinian and Israeli negotiators about this, they would say, we never want to be friends of our opposite numbers, but we needed to be able to trust them. Because if you're going to come to an agreement, you have to have that trust that's
0: really yeah definitely that's really interesting and actually when you're talking about the you know you need to have the trust when you're coming to an agreement and just thinking about a a term that's often used in social work around disguised compliance um, and it's often used when maybe um, a social worker might feel that a parent is saying that they're going to follow through with certain actions to look after the child when actually in reality maybe that's not happening Um, and that's something that we really I think we we need that relationship with parents to be able to overcome that barrier and to really unpick, you know, the difficulties and what genuinely is going on for them at that time to then avoid the, I guess, the superficial level of an agreement and to really get a meaningful agreement.
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, the uh, American revolutionary and, and uh, you know, one of the founding fathers of the United States, used to say the way to build trust is to lend someone a book because you're showing that you trust them. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, when I'm working with armed groups around the world, I don't take lots of security men with me with guns. I put myself basically at their mercy so I'm showing that I trust them because they're going to look after me and make sure I don't get into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helps build enough confidence to actually get stuff done. So you have to build trust in different ways, but if you don't have that trust, it really isn't going to work.
0: When you've been talking, it seems like negotiation is a really key part in, of leadership as well from your perspective.
1: Yeah. And you have to think when you're doing a negotiation, I mean, I used to be very sceptical about the theory of negotiation. I always thought, yeah, I'm a practitioner. I don't care about that. But over the last, uh, 12 years or so, I've been working, particularly with academics from Harvard, where they set up a project on negotiation. And it's quite interesting when you look at negotiation, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're negotiating with terrorists or a business or inside governments or whatever it is. There are some rules that seem to hold whichever the, the forum is. And one of the most important is thinking about people's interests rather than their positions. So the trouble with negotiations is you tend to go in and people state their positions and you're stuck. Uh, what you know to try and do is get behind that's why you need to listen and talk because you want to get behind what their position is and try and find out what their interests are. Um, you know, for example, negotiating the IRA, the IRA said that uh, Brits out that was their requirement. Mm. Well, we didn't even talk about United Ireland when we sat down at the table, but we found other things that were of interest to them in terms of the Irish language, in terms of power sharing, in terms there's north south bodies, all sorts of steps we could take when we couldn't uh, just get to United Ireland. So if you try and dig behind to get to their interests, uh, that will help you resolve it. Whether, whether, they're, you know, whether it's the police uh, or you, know, you may find out that they've got a particular issue in a particular part of town or a particular budget issue. If you can find out what that interest is, uh, then it makes it much easier for you to get to, a, mm-hmm. to an agreement.
0: And, and I think another um, aspect that we often talk about when it comes to leadership is having the courage to make your Make a decision. Um, I think as a social worker, we're really encouraging other families and parents to, to I guess make decisions for themselves and to make cause change for themselves but sometimes it is necessary when a social worker maybe needs to take a decision into their own hands that might be needed if the child is at risk of harm um, and i'm wondering as a leader or observer of leadership um at what point do you think you should make a decision and have you any advice around how you get others
1: on board yeah, i've always um always admired social workers for their ability to take those incredibly difficult decisions i mean you know Decisions I used to deal with were maybe affected millions of people, but to affect a family like that and to make that decision, it must be really, really gut-wrenching and hard. And I've got nothing but admiration for the ability of social workers to do that. And I think too often people start blaming them uh, without really due consideration of the difficulties of what they're trying to do. But in my world... uh, Really, there are there are two qualities that leaders are born with. Uh, Machiavelli, who's a much um, maligned, in my view, uh, political thinker, people make him out to be this evil genius who was completely amoral. It wasn't true at all. He was actually quite pragmatic and simply observing what he saw in the 15th century. And he said that the two qualities a leader needs to be born with are the courage to make decisions and uh, intelligence. But and by intelligence he meant EQ, emotional intelligence, not intellectual intelligence. And the thing I've observed about politicians is that they have it or they don't have it. There are many other skills that can be learned, skill I mean, oratory. People think people are born orators. They're not. They learn to be. Bill Clinton, when I followed him in 91, was a terrible public speaker. He was really boring and long-winded. He gave a speech in 1988 at the Democratic Party convention uh, that nominated Michael Dukakis. And the only clap he got in the whole speech was when he said, and finally. Uh, so he was not a great speaker. But in the course of that election campaign, in 1991 and 1992, he became, by practice, a brilliant speaker. So oratory can be learned, but the thing that can't be learned is courage of making a decision. And you see politicians who just find it really hard to make a decision. They're presented with it, and they ask for more information. They prevaricate, and perhaps unfairly, but I think of Gordon Brown in that category. When you Remember when Gordon Brown first became leader? There was all the speculation about an election uh, in 2007. And uh, he allowed his people to go out and brief there was going to be an election, There's was going to be an election. And then he suddenly decided, finally, at the end, uh, when, when the polls started going down, he wasn't going to have an election. And that inability to decide is something that can be catastrophic because mm. people see through you as a leader. They think you have doubts in your own belief. Whereas Tony Blair, when he became leader of the Labour Party, um, decided to go for a uh, reform of clause form. He was told by everyone, Robin Cook, or sorts of people, don't do it, it's mad. He went for it because he decided that's how he had to show that he was in some way different. So that ability to make a decision and then own it is absolutely fundamental, I think, to leadership. Um, You um, uh, too often see people who make a decision and then try and slough it off and pretend it was someone else and say, you know, I I didn't really want to do that. Uh, Someone else made me do it. I think people find that uh, not just dispiriting but very... um, uh, that undermines their belief in in, in, a, in a leader if, if they do that. And, of course, you know, this back-covering type of approach can lead to avoiding making any decisions, and that usually leads to uh, the worst possible of outcomes, and I'm sure the same must be t- true in mm-hmm. social care.
0: Absolutely, and I think it, for the children and young people that we work with, they often, you know, look to us for to make a decision to um have make a better outcome for them. And I think if you don't make that decision and you keep if you dilly dally and you know, and sometimes it does take time, and you do need to be patient, and and which is what we've spoken about. But there does come to a point where you're thinking, right? Okay, now we need to think about what we're going to do, and um, for that child, young person, really, because otherwise, I think they tend to lose faith in you as well as their social worker. Yeah. Um, it, they really do need confidence that you're going to be fighting for, um, you know, whether it's to get them a service that's maybe not with them at the moment, such as mental health services or anything like that. Um, I mean, one example when I've worked with a child and young person is, you know, they, had, um, they were really struggling with their mental health. They really felt like they needed um, some support. The waiting list was, was quite large. Um, I worked alongside in partnerships, building that relationship up with, with the institution and uh, my point of contact, which led to the young person then being able to have that long-term support.
1: And I imagine you need the other elements of leadership I talked about as a social worker too, which is the emotional intelligence. Absolutely. So- it was, I think it was Roy Jenkins said very unkindly of Tony Blair that he had a second class intellect, with a first class temperament. And although it was unkind, I think there's some truth to it. But what Tony had was a, a very uh, good emotional intelligence. He could tell when people were going in a particular direction, for example, on the death of Princess Diana. You know, he reacted to that very spontaneously, very quickly, uh, and managed to capture the um, mood of the people. And that emotional intelligence is incredibly important to knowing when to take decisions and how to persuade people to go along with you. And if you don't have that, if you just have the intellectual intelligence, uh, that's important too, but it's not as crucial as the EQ. And I imagine, again, that must be the case with social workers.
0: Absolutely. And I think that links back as well to our use of motivational interviewing and our communication that we use with children and families and having that emotional intelligence to really draw on their own motivations, draw on what they're passionate about, what they want to see happen. So it doesn't feel like someone's making a decision. It's about us working in partnership to, to support the children and young people. And I think as well, similarly, like relating to the bureaucracy of social work, um, it's important that social workers also have the freedom to be forward-thinking, using their initiative to better the system for children and families. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think the two things uh, that echo have echoes for me in sort of things I do there. One, the importance of having a strategic plan for, for, the, for each process. You know, in Afghanistan, you need to have a very clear strategic plan of how you're going to get from here, from a war where hundreds of thousands are dying, to uh, uh, to a situation of peace. So, and the point about the plan is that you need to have a concrete strategic goal. You need to think through how you're going to try and get there, but do not make the plan rigid because if you stick to the plan rigidly, um, it won't work. You have to be able to adapt that plan. Uh, as the circumstances go along, but we're losing sight of the strategic goal. What happens is sometimes people get sidetracked onto to, uh, to other issues. And then you have to be creative about how you follow that creativity you're talking about. Um, you know, if you're talking to an armed group, um, they don't have a front door you can knock on and uh, say, can I come and see you? So, for example, in the case of Aceh in Indonesia, uh, a colleague of mine was working uh, as a very vicious war between the Indonesian government and the GAM guerrillas. Uh, and he knew the name of the leader of the gam. He knew he lived in Stockholm, but he didn't have any other information. So he went through the Stockholm telephone book and rang everyone with the right name until he eventually found the leader. Uh, And then to his surprise, the leader said, oh, yes, I'd love to talk to you. I've been fighting this war for 20 years, and no one's actually ever approached me and asked to come and speak to me. So I'd be delighted to to have a conversation. So sometimes you have to have these unusual ways of uh, approaching the problem, because if you just follow the orthodox way, you're not going to get anywhere.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. That's really interesting that he sort of reached out, and then after twenty years, that that you know that act to approach him could have solved a massive conflict that's been going on for years and years and years. So again,
1: there may be some parallels there with social uh, social work because the um, uh, the reason he said that is the reason I come across a lot when we meet with uh, guerrilla leaders is they say, "Well, no one's ever shown us any respect. No one's ever listened to what we had to say." You know, we, the reason we took up weapons was because. Uh, no one um, acknowledged that we had uh, issues that we wanted to protect. So I think what I find is the first time you meet a a guerrilla leader, you really have to spend a long time, I mean, I'm talking tens, even hundreds of hours, of listening to um, their stories about why they feel that they have been so badly treated, about why they feel they're victims. And it's only when you've got through that that you can actually then begin to address uh, how to solve the problems. You're
0: absolutely right. Before change can happen, you need that sort of foundation of a relationship. You need that foundation where they've had the time to really talk about what they've been through. And I guess thinking from when you've been talking, um, you've said that quite a few sort of situations where maybe you've been maybe a little bit at risk or, <laughs> um, you know, in risky mm-hmm. situations. But I'm wondering if you've got any advice around um, approaching um, a situation where maybe you are managing risk?
1: Yeah, I think um, the important thing is to be uh, risk aware but not risk averse, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, another anecdote uh, a few years ago, now, how long, about eight, nine years ago, when the Syrian war was at its height, I was trying to cross into Syria to meet some fighters and I was crossing the Kurdish border. And first of all, the Kurd- Kurdish side in Iraq wouldn't allow us to go across. And then I managed to get permission to go across and, I, and they'd cut the bridge. So it's across the river. And I had walked down to the edge of the river, and there were lots of boats coming across with refugees from Syria into Iraq and dropping the people off. And to my horror, there was a cameraman there filming uh, the refugees. And even worse for me, I then realized that the correspondent doing the story was an ITN correspondent who was from Northern Ireland, so immediately knew me. So he filmed me getting on the boat and going over, and I said to him, please don't use it. He said, no, I won't use it unless they chop your head off. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, so uh, luckily he stuck to his word and I didn't get my head chopped off and we went to the other side and we met by the guerrilla leaders and they drove us off in their 4x4s four and, uh, went. and uh, we were sleeping on the floor in a house in Kamishki, I think it was in, uh, in Northern Europe uh, and just in our clothes on the floor and uh, the guy looking after me turned around and a gun dropped out of the back of his trousers and I suddenly realised that's where my security lay in, in, in that the thing is not to enter into these things there obviously is going to be a risk but don't enter in on the basis of ignorance. What people who get into trouble quite often are people who take risks without really knowing they're taking risks. They just sort of walk into the situation. They walk into Syria and get themselves kidnapped. They, and that's yeah, that's not sensible. It's okay to take a risk if you thought about um, how that risk, uh, to make sure you know exactly what the, the metric of the risk is and the benefit you're going to get by taking that risk is worth taking. So you have to think about that balance. And I'm sure that must, again, mm. be the same working with kids in social work.
0: Yeah, we often use the term safe uncertainty. Um, yeah. So we, every day, you know, we do work with risk and, and it's about being OK with that as long as you do it in a safe manner. Um, and I think that's really important because, as you say, if, if you're just like risk adverse, it, that's a barrier to be able to move things forward and to be able to sort of tr- try and create change for children young people. And I think, um, as a sort of a, a final thought in, um, I guess, wrapping up this podcast, it's been really interesting hearing about everything that you've done and and linking it in with social work. It's it's been fascinating. Um, but I think one thing recently is obviously the impact COVID nineteen is having on children and families, um, and lots of people around the world. And it, you know, having a global pandemic, it, it's been it's been very you know come, it's come with its challenges. Um, and I'm wondering if you've got. Uh, any advice for social workers who are supporting those greatly impacted by COVID-19 now?
1: Yeah, one thing I would say is that uh, perspective is incredibly important. You know, Harold Wilson famously said a week is a long time in politics. And what he really meant was people get caught up in things. So each day just seems completely overwhelming and there's no way you're going to be able to cope with this. And I've talked to lots of ministers who got themselves caught in, in scandals or crises or... Or things, or really difficult decisions, and so on. And they just get overwhelmed. They can't, they just think there's going to be no future. Um, And trying to have that sense of perspective to make people think slightly longer term, to try and think slightly um, wider about what's happening, can help them make much better decisions. I remember Tony Blair saying to me again after a few years in in government, he said, You know, Jonathan, I wish I'd studied something useful for my job, for being prime minister, something like history rather than law. Because history gives you this perspective, this, this view of the longer term of things. And I think that's one of the key things that leaders always need to think about because otherwise they just get so bound up in the current crisis, whether in our case it was a foot and mouth or the uh, fuel crisis, but now it will be obviously um, uh, obviously COVID.
0: No, that's a lovely, um, I think, lovely piece to end on um, lovely piece of advice to end on it's been so enjoyable honestly I've really enjoyed talking to you it's been so interesting being able to um, sort of relate social work into your world of negotiations and um, peace talks and leadership and everything so I've yeah thank you so much for talking with us
1: no well thank you very much Beth I enjoyed it it's interesting for me to try and sort of yeah you do, even in this sort of world you get very much focused on your own thing to so actually think of this applying to social workers is an interesting concept that I haven't got my head around so it's helped me
0: do that. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you.